Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the psychotic films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about a real classic grindhouse feature from 1972 called Asylum of Satan. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, we went one episode before going back to Satan's Embrace, but tonight's film focuses on a very real-world problem. That's right, gaslighting women. If you'd like to follow along, then, as of this broadcast, you can find 1972's Asylum of Satan on YouTube. Luke, I was supposed to like this, right? Or were you gaslighting me before when you're saying that I would really, I should like this film? I I thought you would like it, or at least I thought it would be really fun to talk about. But, uh, but this is the gaslighting movie, so maybe I was, uh, unconsciously doing it so i take it you did not enjoy it it could have been better okay that's a good starting place so i just saw this movie for the first time recently and uh i have the vhs tape it's super cool there's i've seen a few different tapes for this but um mine is from united home video it's got the the satan monster face on the front and It has this hyperbolic tagline, love slaves of Satan tortured to blood dripping death. Do you think that that's accurate? It's it's a it's a little pushing the the themes here. It's pushing a little bit. All right. Well, here, let me let me give you the back. First, it says explicit horror not recommended for persons under 17 years of age. A beautiful young concert pianist is abducted and taken to the Asylum of Satan, where screams of torture echo throughout the halls and axe-chopped bodies chase lovely victims down corridors of death. Lucinia, mistaken for a virgin, is caught in this garish unreality more horrible than death itself, desperately... It's so ridiculous. (laughs) Desperately clutching to soft memories of the past, a sadistic disciple of Satan is in charge of this gruesome hospital. He offers the female patients to a creature of death, a missionary from the bowels of hell, sent to ravage and devour his earthly love slaves. (laughs) That's the most uh, intense back of the box for a pg film we have ever seen yeah and then it has a list of like i guess scary things that are in the movie it says shrouded nightmare creatures axe chopped bodies virgin sacrifices snakes spiders and cockroaches nubile love slaves tortured to blood dripping death that, box- that is so far out there from what's actually in this film. Like if I had read that box before I watched this film, I would have thought I had an edited version. <laughs> I I mean, I don't even think there are any love slaves in this movie. No, not at N- all. Nothing you'd describe as a love slave. So 
I'm glad the back of the box is like that, though, because I get to laugh at it. Um, but yeah, it's it's totally misleading. I do enjoy this movie. You know, if it did everything on the back of the box, it would just be like a Nicolas Cage like parody of a horror movie, and it would be too ridiculous to even begin to take seriously. Maybe that would be a worse film, actually. No way. You'd take the... Uh, the satire yeah i think that's that would have been a much more intense film than what we got here <laughs> okay well we'll get into it um so if you hadn't caught on so far this movie involves uh, a a woman who is in the the hospital for i guess hysteria um she's she needs a rest but she is mysteriously transferred to a secret asylum where she is not allowed to leave and nobody is allowed to visit her. And for the rest of the movie, we follow her fiance, Chris, as he tries to figure out how to get her out of this asylum. She is some kind of performer. That is her profession, but they She's never state what she actually does during these concerts. Yeah. She's a pianist. Oh, she's a pianist. I totally missed that. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, I think we're led to believe that she had a nervous breakdown from overworking herself. Right. Yeah. And then she was told to take a break. So she did what everybody does when they take a one that want to get away. They go to the hospital and then <laughs> she falls asleep in one hospital and wakes up in the asylum. Yeah. And there are three other normal people in the asylum and i lose i i use the term um loosely we've got one blind girl one wheelchair bound woman and one man who's mute i think and everybody else wears white robes and stares at the ground and only eats eggs just as satan ordained <laughs> That scene, I mean, we're going to get into this uh, more, but that scene where they're all sitting in the dining room with their eggs, that's the kind of scene that I love this movie for. That is the best scene of the film, and but it's also misleading because I thought the whole film was going to be full of shit like that. Yeah. But that's as far out as this movie goes. Yeah. So some things we should talk about before we get into the story. This was written and directed by William Girdler. This was his first film. Um, but let's see what he went on to do. The Manitou was his last film. Ah, that's what I know him from, The Manitou. Uh, he did a, a cool ex, um, black exploitation film with Pam Greer called Sheba Baby. He did Abby, which is like the black exorcist kind of. Is that something we'd cover on this podcast? I've seen Maybe. it like around a few times. Maybe. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I don't remember um, particularly liking it, but I could give it a rewatch. Oh, I lied a moment ago. Asylum of Satan was his second movie, or at least it came out the same year as Three on a Meat Hook, which is a pretty sought after film like among VHS collectors. I was also under the impression this was his first film. 
Well, IMDb is kind of weird because it says 1972 for both of them. But this seems, this feels like a first film. It is starring um, a few people of note. First, our main and our main antagonist, uh, Dr. Spector, is played by Charles Kissinger. So this movie was filmed in Louisville, Kentucky, and I guess that's where Girdler is from. A lot of his films are set there, I guess. Um, but anyway, this guy was a, a local celebrity that I think he was famous for being on used car commercials. But regardless, this was his first and I think only acting credit. Oh, no, I take that back. He's been in all of the director's movies, it looks like, but no other films. Uh, the the fiancé, Chris, is played by Nick Jolly, who was never in another movie. And Lucinia is played by Carla Borelli, who... I think was a pretty well-known actress. Um, she's been a lot of stuff. but I think she did fine in this film. Yeah, I actually think all the performances are fine. The fiancé is a little hammy and ridiculous. Um, but even him, I at least like and sympathize with his character. Like, I want him to succeed. You know, he uh, does the vocals for the intro song. Yeah, yeah, he does. So this movie starts with an absolutely obnoxious country song uh, that's sung by our lead actor. Did What do you think of the music in the movie overall? Was it country or more like bluegrass? Uh, maybe bluegrass. I think it's like bluegrass. And There's first, a blurry I'm like, line. I'm like, who the fuck starts off a movie about Satan with bluegrass? But, it's a very odd fit. But you know, there's the, the really popular like American folktale of Satan losing the fiddling contest by the crossroads. And I'm like, you know what? This kind of works. All right. I see what they're going for. Oh, no. Or maybe this guy's just being like the director is just being peak Kentucky by, by throwing this into the front. I, I, I think it that's closer to the truth, but the rest of the movie, I think the music's great. Um, it alternates between like traditional drama score and then other times it's really eerie, like theremin synth type noises. I I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's varied. I mean, you're not going to remember it in like two years, but uh, right. you know, humming it to yourself. But um, yeah, it, it sets the tone pretty well. There is a there is a I thought it was fucking hilarious moment near the end of the film where the police are on the way to the asylum. And the direction is being uh, divided. The attention is divided back and forth between the uh, Satanists at the asylum performing the ritual and law enforcement on route. And when it focuses on the asylum, there's <laughs> no music at all. You know, it's just all atmospheric. The Satanists yeah. are chanting or whatever. And then when it jumps over to law enforcement it's a fucking banjo going off like a solo <laughs> and it does this like three or four times <laughs> well, <laughs> well there's also like whenever we see chris driving in his porsche his yellow porsche he gets his own like funky theme song so oh, it'll notice that but i i don't doubt it yeah there'll that be was a the moment... director's car by the way there'll be like a horror scene with eerie you know, 
atmospheric music and then it switches to Chris driving and it's it's funky wah-wah guitar. It's really, I liked both. They're just odd when put together. Oh, well, I guess like we said, this was a, this was his first film. It was the early 70s. Directing as an art form was still emerging. <laughs> <laughs> and and this guy does, I mean, I don't want to say like redeems himself, but uh, he does redeem himself with like the Manitou at least. I haven't seen his other films, but I remember really liking Manitou. I I wouldn't say I really like Manitou, but I, I, I don't think it's good by any means, but I would like to talk about it on the podcast at some point. Yeah, eventually, yeah. Anything else before we tra- play the play the trailer? Apparently, the main actress was originally supposed to be nude, according to her contract during the film. Yeah, I saw that on IMDb. Minute. Yeah, that's like a whole fucking scandal right there. I mean, I'll try to wonder like what I would do if I was like the director and like my leading lady was like, "No, I'm gonna violate contract." Like, what would I do? Like, I don't think I would try to enforce it. I think I would, I mean, obviously her being nude w- would not have improved this film at all. <laughs> it would have been ex- exact same. I, I mean, I think that, <laughs> I think the, what I would do as a director would depend on the purpose of the nudity. Like yeah. if it was just for exploitive purposes, like we can show her in a skimpy bathing suit or something instead. But if it, actually creates part of the theme or you know does something really emotionally serious for the viewer then i think it's worth keeping in and you just hire someone else i guess but like he had that that problem and then the blind girl didn't feel comfortable doing the stunt in the swimming pool and so they had to get another girl to stand in as the stunt actress, even though all she was doing was flailing around in like waist deep water. Yeah, it was the director's sister. Yeah, like so weird that he had that problem with two different actresses, like trying to break um, their contract. I don't know. I mean, he probably these aren't professionals in the way that like most of them don't have long careers or anything you probably just get more of those things when you're dealing with amateurs. You think so? I'd imagine if you had like a big name actor, actress, that they'd be able to throw their clout around to get more of they, what they want on the set. I mean, it would depend on the person, right? So you might have some young people who are like, oh, I'm new to the business. Like I've, I've just got to go along and do what they tell me. And um, so I'm, I'm going to get naked for this scene. But then you have other ones who might, um, not necessarily be, I don't know, meek and obsequious like that, but who would not realize they were uncomfortable with it until they got in the moment. Yeah. So I can, like, that makes sense to me. All right. All right. Let's get this trailer. All right. Pleasant Hill Hospital. To those on the outside, peaceful and serene. To those on the inside, Filled with terror and evil beyond belief. A beautiful girl, torn from the arms of love. Her very life a nightmare in the house of hell. With no hope of escape or mercy. What do you know about those people over there? Nothing. We don't ask. It's simpler that way. 
The doom at their last meal with death as the dinner guest. If you don't mind, I didn't sleep very much last night and I'm very tired. Now the only thing I want to hear about or discuss is my immediate release. Sit down. Awakened by a mutilated, crazed animal who seeks her beauty to appease the bloodlust of a devil bridegroom. Pursued to the canyons of hell to the edge of sanity by the bestial craving of the Prince of Darkness. The Asylum of Satan. Death and murder at its most hideous, transforming a lovely young girl into a frightened animal before your very eyes. The devil beast roaming the earth, searching always, seeking a bride for his twisted paradise to reign forever beside the archdemon of hell. The Asylum of Satan. I love that, that trailer. Like, that felt like four TV slots like combined into one. Uh, whatever it was, it was wonderful. I'm so glad I heard it. <laughs> yeah, so let's do a general walkthrough of this movie. Our main character, Lucinia, wakes up at the beginning of the movie at Pleasant Hill Hospital. And this is not where she went to sleep, as you explained earlier, Leland. Um, her doctor, Dr. Nolan, um, supposedly transferred her to this new hospital under the care of Dr. Spector. Um, but she has no idea why she's there. And during this whole initiation into the new hospital, she meets the head nurse, I guess, kind of Dr. Spector's head nurse. Uh, how would you describe this character, Leland? Clearly a man. <laughs> yeah, it's very clear, right? And it's not even like, it's not even like this character is trans or there's like it's a plot point that it's a man. As far as we know at this point, there's just a man playing a woman for no reason. I have kind of been binging Giallo films for like the past three months. And so my like spider senses started tingling right off the bat thinking this was going to be a major plot point. And it kind of is, but it's pretty underwhelming. It's not a necessary plot point. Like you didn't need it. 
I actually kind of liked when this. I liked this character as I originally imagined her. I thought she was like a really fun, villainous kind of wacky character. And um, I was kind of disappointed with how it turned out. Yeah, I, I did. I will say I did not expect. Uh, can we just spoil this shit now? Sure. Okay, I did not expect Dr. Spectre and the nurse to be the same actor. Okay, I did, definitely did not see that coming. No, I didn't either. Um, so there's a point where the the nurse peels off her face like it's a mask. And this actually looks pretty cool. Like the effect looks pretty cool. And uh, compared to some of the other masks in this movie. Ugh. And uh, after she pulls it off, it, it, she's revealed to be Dr. Spectre, but they're actually both played by the same actor. So it ends up like you end up realizing why they're, he's, this man is playing this woman. But up until then, it's just, it just feels odd and in you know, uh, unjustifiable, indescribable. And that's why I like it so much. This um this head nurse is very like uh patronizing to um Lucinia. Like she says she's only allowed to speak when spoken to, and they eventually restrain and sedate her. Over uh, just like a mild complaint. Wasn't it anything crazy? No, it was like I think she wanted to call her fiance. Yeah, how dare she? But anyway, she's eventually calmed down and she meets this very calm um, assistant character who won't answer any of her questions. And so basically this whole first part of the movie is just Lucinia being like, why the fuck am I here? I want to go. Like, there's no reason for me to be here. And the doctors and nurses saying like, you don't understand. You're just crazy and you need to rest here for a while. And we have you on a treatment. So trust us. And there's only, as I said earlier, a few other seemingly normal patients. They all think that Dr. Spector is a miracle worker, that he's going to restore the one woman's sight. He's going to help the other woman walk again. And he's going to heal whatever is wrong with the other guy. Everyone else in this place is in a wheelchair and a white robe. And according to the breakfast menu, they only eat a single egg. What did you think at this point in the movie, Leland? Like, how was it going? At first, I was a little, um, I was a little iffy on this film because you got like the bluegrass opening, and then this person who's clearly in drag, and uh, this woman again. This. This is like a fucking nightmare for like your everyday woman who's just constantly being talked down to by everybody and being told that there is a major problem here that needs to be fixed. But clearly everything is OK. Right. And then you get to this scene and it turned. It, this is like a this is kind of surreal, in my opinion. It, like it the is. Way it's filmed. Uh everybody's in these identical white robes you cannot see their faces and they're all just looking down at a plate of egg the <laughs> shell is on it I don't, I don't even think they're hard-boiled they're just balanced <laughs> in the middle <laughs> and i i kind of started to have this turnaround on this film thinking like oh man if, if the rest of this film is like this trippy this is gonna be cool but um, unfortunately it doesn't really ever hit this height again 
Well, this scene is, you're right. The, it looks like something out of a Bunel film or a Dolly painting. Like it's very surreal and evocative and um, eerie. And uh, I, I do think this is the best part of the movie. But as soon as Lucinia starts asking any questions, um, assistants come and take all the other people away. Well, before we get into that, right? Let me introduce our other, quote, normal patients. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we have a blind girl. We have a mute guy, right? So see no evil, speak no evil. So then naturally the third person is a will-bound chair woman. <laughs> or will, I'm sorry, wheelchair bound woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like really? <laughs> I I I don't think they were going for any a degree of symbolism here. I think they just thought we need some excuse to have this character confined to a hospital where they think they're going to be healed. They couldn't do that with a deaf character? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I really feel like that was going to be the original plan and then they're like, "Nah, fuck it." <laughs> we don't know how to implement that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. If we wanted to make the film more of a symbolic, meaningful experience, but that's just, it's not what they're going for. Yeah, right. This is supposed to be just like a blood gore tits fest, right? It, well, it's not that either. Um, <laughs> really? Did we read the same box? But, but I do think it's just like classic grindhouse fare, but relatively tame, right? compared to the sex and gore fest that's advertised. I just, but, to, I just I had to put it out there how much that bothered me. Yeah, there, there are scenes, though, where it's really dreamy or surreal or eerie. And uh, it, there's usually, like, usually the budget or the ineptitude makes it somewhat silly at the same time. But I don't even mind that. It, like, even Evil Dead has that push and pull between like inept silliness and actual scariness. So that doesn't bother me. Basically, the next important thing that happens is we meet Chris. And Chris is getting off of a, an airplane and he rides on the longest escalator ever. And uh, he goes to find his fiance after calling the hospital and finding out she'd been transferred to this other mysterious clinic. And so we get a scene between him and Dr. Spencer. You mean, wait, Dr. Spector? Yeah. How would you describe Dr. Spector's appearance? So Dr. Spector, first off, has there ever been anyone with the last name Spector who wasn't absolute evil? Probably not. Um, yeah. I mean, there's even a scene where the police make fun of Chris for using this name. Isn't there like a record producer with the last name Spectre that like murdered women? It's, it's not a good look, especially yeah. if you're trying to be like a covert Satanist. Right. Anyway, uh, his appearance. Yo, I mean, he kind of has like the whole uh, kind of like the, the whole traditional like Satan mustache going on, like what you would see in like the old. Like Looney Tunes cartoons. Except it's clearly glued on. Yes, it's glued on. Which like 
So the whole and see, I kind of like this about the movie. The whole movie, I'm like, why the fuck is his facial hair glued on? Like he could just have a real facial hair or better adapted or better applied facial hair. Um, but then it does end up making sense because it's fake so that he can switch back and forth between the female role. Martine is her name. And uh, so there is a reason for it to look fake, but for most of the running time of the movie, it just seems bizarre. Martine spelled Martin, right? Uh, IMDb <laughs> has an E on the end. Oh. Martine with an E on the end. But anyhow, so... But, you know, ignoring Spectre, let's talk about Chris and <laughs> his, his fucking wardrobe throughout this entire film. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess yeah. Lucina as well, while we're on it, like, okay, she is being held captive and she can't leave this asylum, but they let her dress up like snazzy every single scene. <laughs> <laughs> they did not spare any expense in allowing her to have her complete wardrobe. No, her hair, her hair is very well done as well. So anyway, Chris, man, he, he wears so many ridiculous pants throughout this entire film. <laughs> You know, it's just the sign of the times, but oh my God, the patterns are insane. There's, there's a scene about half, like a little more than halfway through the film where he's trying to like sneak up onto the asylum property. And, you know, when you're trying to go covert, you know, solid snake style, what do you wear? Like muted earth tones, black, that sort of thing, right? This dude shows up in a sky blue like blazer jacket with matching pants and then underneath is a bright orange shirt <laughs> and then i and then there's a part where he takes his jacket off and reveals that the collar is not even a part of the jacket he's wearing another long sleeve blue shirt underneath the orange sweater <laughs> with this wild collar coming out yeah, I what I told you and Chris. <laughs> I told my wife while we were watching it that this character was like the 70s incarnate in one person. He has the the awful mustache, smoking a cigarette with like a a mullet type haircut, big gla tinted glasses, and then his polyester outfits. And uh yeah, he's just extremely 70s. I like him. This was the height of masculinity in 1972. Although, I mean, this guy's not the most masculine guy, despite his mustache. I mean, he's got, he's kind of short and pudgy and. No, not but he all fights people. He's yeah, he does fight people. Yeah. 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 And he does get that funky theme music. You heard it in the trailer, right? There's this weird mashup even in the trailer between eerie silence and then funky action music and then of course he drives a sports car right um so let's talk about the scene where dr specter's assistant martine gives lucinia a bath what do you think about this scene you know, I didn't I didn't really give this scene much thought, but now in retrospect, knowing that it's Spectre, it, you know, obviously it makes it more uh more skeezy 
which is yeah appropriate for this film. But it this is on. We see it. We see another person like peeping in through a hole in the wall. Who would that be? Because at the time, before I knew that uh, the nurse was Spectre, I assumed it was Spectre. So there's two different scenes back to back, right? So the premise here is that Spectre tells Lucina that she needs a formal examination before she can be let out of the facility. So she agrees. Apparently a bath is part of the formal examination, which somehow doesn't set off any red flags. Or maybe at this point, she's just like, fuck it. I just want to get this over with. While she's getting undressed in the doctor's office, that is when Spectre like moves the little thing in the wall behind to spy on her. But the next scene, it seems like there might have been a period of time that it uh, elapsed. That so makes maybe sense. there was the exam. And then there's the bath. And then that's when Spectre could have changed his garb and then came in. Yeah. So the I mean, if all you're doing is putting on like a onesie dress and ripping off some facial hair, putting on a wig, you know, that can't take too long, right? Especially if you're someone like Spectre who's been hopping identities back and forth for, you know, since, since like what, uh, the 1800s. How long has he been alive? <laughs> I think it says over 100 years. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, Lucinia is like, you know, I can bathe myself. And the inspector in drag uh, is like, no, Dr. Spence, Dr. Spector ordered a hot bath. So I'm going to make sure that you stay in. And Lucinia thinks the water is too hot, but they, they make her get in anyway. They say that uh, her skin is unblemished by sin. And so this is where we find out that they think she's a virgin for some reason. For absolutely unfounded, right? Like she has a fiance. Yeah, it's even ignoring anything else. It it's we get like a, a a romantic flashback in the middle of the movie where we see uh, Chris and Lucinia going about like some dating activities and then in bed together. Do you think that scene is just there to make sure we understand that she's not a virgin? I'm pretty sure. But, you know, you have to think about this shit in retrospect because this whole virgin angle, even though it's prominently featured on the back of the box, isn't mentioned at all until near the end of the film. You just have to surmise that that matters for some reason but when when the boyfriend chris shows up to the to the asylum after tracking her down uh they won't let him in they tell him that they don't have visiting hours at that hospital and dr specter eventually comes out and says it's because some patients are easily disturbed and it's better if their treatment is not interrupted but uh lucinia's banging on the window trying to get his attention this is like this sort of scene is a, a trope of 70s movies right where somebody is trying to get someone else's attention uh layered on top of a woman it, it may be crazy but probably not because there's probably something going on um it's archetypal in a way but i still thought it was effective in this movie like i liked her i 
that made me anxious when she couldn't get through to him. Uh, he seems like a rational person for the most part who I want to succeed. Like they did a good job of getting me invested in the characters. Yeah, I suppose. Um, speaking of like first movie woes though, there are some f- scenes in this movie that go on for way too long. And, uh, her at the window banging on it is one of them yeah there are some slight pacing issues like that i mean we're talking about like a solid two minutes of her like at a window crying like banging on the yeah, glass and banging on it yeah it does go a little, on too long a little excessive but it it i guess in dramatically in the scene it's supposed to be an important you know emotional moment and afterwards she demands to know why she wasn't allowed to see Chris. And uh, the doctor gives her this incredibly like patronizing gaslighting line. He says, if you're good and do as you're told, you'll be released soon. It, it honestly made me uncomfortable, but I do appreciate that the movie seems to be about a woman being put in that situation and fighting back and being like, quote unquote, modern for the 70s. You hear it in the trailer, but there's actually um, Lucina really tries to like argue her way out of the facility. Like she goes full Karen and it doesn't work. But thinking about it now, this whole like dilemma her, this whole like patience dilemma is the probably the best crafted part of the screenplay it is really effective. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, I think this is an, uh, this is an archetypal situation, especially for, I think, British movies in the seventies. Um, but maybe that's just my viewing bias. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, I, I think it's it is a trope because there's some effectiveness. Uh, I'm naturally very anxious and engaged when somebody is stuck in a environment like this and can't get through to the other characters in the cast. Like I used to be, and I guess I still am terrified of an insane asylum, but not like a current insane asylum, like a 1970s far more abusive than this insane asylum. Like I read one floor of the cuckoo's nest as a kid and that disturbed me. Um, so anyway, maybe I'm just naturally inclined to fear this situation. When it comes to old timey horror medical techniques, like lobotomies, I always wonder like what techniques that are considered modern now will be viewed in that light in like 25, 30 years. I don't know if there are any. Like, they, are there that many things we do without um, like comprehending the effects at this point? Um, maybe uh, a lot of the psychiatric medication that's prescribed now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, I don't think we know the long-term effects of. So I, I can see that... Uh, Obviously, not as visceral as ripping out your frontal lobe, but uh, right, you know, could still be chock full of long-term consequences. Like, oh, the- imagine like 25, 30 years from now, like microplastic beads are viewed as like the same category as like lead pipes, and we just have no idea. I mean, those do fuck up the ocean and kill animals and stuff. 
Yeah. But yeah, th- I was going to say this, this is an aside, but I was reading the other day about the different interventions that doctors try to do to repair phantom limb syndrome and amputees um, who continue to experience pain in their phantom limb. And there's different experimental ways of trying to deal with it, but none of them ensure that it works. And it's stuff like making an incision in the spinal cord and things. But they think they've figured out that your nerve associations that would have been in the phantom limb get rerouted to another part of your body. So they have people who like, if you touch certain parts of their face, they feel like their phantom toes are being touched. And the the map of the foot is perfectly laid out on the map of the face. It's really interesting. But let's get back to Asylum of Satan. Back to Satan and torturing women. <laughs> yeah, so Chris does a pretty rational thing. Um, he goes to see the previous doctor, Dr. Nolan. And Dr. Nolan said that she shouldn't be in an asylum, that there's nothing wrong with her. And the only reason he transferred her is that her father called and insisted it. And then there's like a dun, dun, dun scene where we find out that her father died 12 years ago. So you'd think that would uh, immediately put the doctor into red alert. But no, he's still pretty nonchalant about what's going on. Yeah, he's like, he's like, no, I'm sure it's okay. Even though he says that Dr. Spector appeared in the medical journals several years ago, but got in trouble or something for some experimental surgery. Does he reveal that during this scene or is that later? Uh, I don't recall, but this is the only time we're ever introduced to Dr. Nolan. So it it probably would have to be during this. I really was thinking that he'd turn out to be a, a character in the film that he'd help figure out the mystery or something, but the movie goes in a far simpler direction. Oh yeah. I, I thought I'm going to get into this for review time, but I thought this film was going to be a lot more complicated than it turned out. Yeah. It, in a way, this movie is set up as if it's going to have a really mysterious, intriguing point by point plot. And it ultimately ends up being more like criminally insane that we reviewed a few weeks ago where you've just got a very bare bones, you know, plot that it does not have any mystery or complexity. Anyhow, we find out that it's going to be the lady in the wheelchair's final session tonight. And she's really excited, but then she's wheeled into this dark, empty room and locked inside. Even when, when she tries to open the door, the doorknob comes off, but the room is gassed. And what did you what did you expect to happen in this room? I thought I thought she was going to be gassed and pass out and then be taken someplace else. Wait, like you tell to me, be sacrificed or something. Wait, wait, wait. You tell me you expected her to be gassed in this room. I think so. But I've also seen this before, so I can't remember what I thought the first time. OK, well, I mean, I could tell you as someone who's watched this for the first time, I didn't know what was going to happen, but it sure as fuck wasn't this. Well, I, like I said, I think the the gas was somewhat predictable because I thought they had to get her someplace where they were going to sacrifice her, like in a traditional way to Satan. But no, instead, she's in a wheelchair. You can take her wherever you want. 
Yeah, I guess. But then we wouldn't get that classic 70s movie scene where a character passes out and then she wakes up tied down to stakes or something. Yeah, I I suppose. Okay, okay. But anyhow, so that's what I thought was going to happen. But instead, uh, a bunch of spiders and centipedes and things crawl all over her and I guess devour her. Yeah, something along those lines. They they hit her really hard with the dry ice machine. And then once she's on the floor, there's this like combo of actual beetles or <laughs> bugs. I think they're beetles. And then really fake plastic ones glued to her face that's used to like simulate her being, I guess, murdered by bugs. <laughs> and I think they show the... Uh... I think they show the bugs crawling over her with like a reverse stop motion technique. Um, it, it looks real. It definitely doesn't look real, but I actually thought it looked okay. Like I had fun with it the way you have fun with like the haunted house that your neighbors set up in their garage. You know, like it's not believable, but it's still good. I don't know. I was pretty sure that they actually had um, like a combination of some bug, real bugs crawling on her. I will say not I prefer the tarantula scene in the beyond uh, that that movie is like really famous for. But it uh, I don't think this is any worse than that Uh, in terms of the effects. This one is not as gory as that one, but the effectiveness of the look, the reality of it, I think is pretty equivalent. You know, this is an aside, but earlier today I was watching The Nest. Did you ever see that? It's on my to watch list. So it's a if you haven't seen it, it's a 1980s film with killer cockroaches, and uh, the 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 effects in that one are kind of old school, but they're really cool. Um, I was I had seen it before, but I had forgotten how good uh, the juicy bug gooey effects are. So I recommend that one. I think Squirm from uh, 1976, I hope that's right. That is the film with the best practical bug effects I've ever seen because they just use an ungodly amount of actual worms to pull off their special effects. Yeah, it looks good, but otherwise I really don't like that movie. I don't think I've ever made it through the whole thing without falling asleep. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, it's definitely not like four-star territory or anything. I mean, it is a movie about killer worms, but the effects are just so well done. And you know that that they're well done because they bought so many worms locally in the area where it was filmed that they uh, caused a worm shortage for the fishing industry that lasted like a couple years because they took away all the inventory that's wild yeah but now the only thing i think of similar to that is in japan in the 70s they did things like a calamity of snakes where they use real snakes because they're not afraid to like kill them and things over there they don't have any anti-animal cruelty laws or didn't at the time no i mean this is the country that today still uh kills dolphins for food (laughs) yeah so those scenes, like in that movie, they fill these pits with 
like thousands and thousands of live snakes and then they soak them in gasoline and light it on fire. I, I've actually, wow. never, I've never been able to watch the movie past that part. Uh, Cause like, not that I think pet, not that I think snakes are, are really sentient or, you know, personable or anything, but I have pet ones and I don't want to see them burned alive in a giant pit. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that, I've, okay, so we've, we've covered films with animal cruelty in them before, but nothing on that scale. Like, like a whole pit of snakes being set on fire. Yeah, and I mean, that was just, there was like ripping snakes apart and their hands, banging them against things, like all kinds of snake cruelty in that movie. And then there's a, oh, there's a Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner with yeah. just thousands of tarantulas. Uh, you you can definitely tell they did not give a shit about what happened to those spiders. Yeah, it's similar in uh, Tarantulas, the Deadly Cargo, with uh, with Tom Atkins. Oh, but my favorite is Rats: A Night of Terror, where they have dachshunds play the rats, <laughs> or or a company of wolves where they use the German shepherds and spray paint them silver. <laughs> is it spray paint really it looks like spray paint i i will say i really like that film and i actually really like the effects in it but i that i've always thought that was silly the the dogs they don't look like wolves so going back into into snakes um this second patient here the blind girl her her uh session is up next and I'm not entirely certain what this was supposed to be. You know, they take a blind girl, they lead her into a pool, a swimming pool that we're supposed to believe is actually inside this like uh, <laughs> this like plantation house that turned asylum. Yeah. <laughs> and they just leave her alone in the pool. And apparently that's something normal that's supposed to happen with her. I didn't think that was that weird that like she likes to go swimming. Yeah, but you... Don't leave anybody alone swimming. Nevertheless, someone who's blind. No, yeah, but this is, I had no illusions that this was a real asylum or that any of these people had been trained in how to care for patients. Yeah, I guess you're right. But then, you know, instead of beetles and spiders and whatnot, instead, the, I'm assuming Dr. Spectre unleashes actual snakes actual snakes that swim through the water this is a pretty cool effect but uh, a, a couple of them when we see them up close like look like copperheads they look like poisonous snakes um but then there are other scenes where they just look like harmless king snakes or something once once they actually get to her they're, they're obviously like rubber like snakes that she's like wrestling around with yeah but it looks kind of silly but it's it was actually kind of uh ominous just seeing like a a pool of like six seven snakes like doing that distinctive swim through the water to reach her yeah i don't know if it was intentional or not but i think a lot of the imagery in this movie really does succeed at being eerie and this is one of them the the snakes swimming through the like blue lit water in the dark room I got to say though chlorine is really bad for reptiles and this was probably a chlorinated pool yeah, but at least they weren't throwing them in pits and lighting them on fire. Yeah, yeah. At least they weren't doing that. 
<laughs> so while these people are dying, let's talk about Chris's visit to see the police. Oh my god, this this is so stupid. <laughs> yeah, even this... if you have no familiarity with how law enforcement in America works, like none of this tracks. So he he goes into the police station and he sees Detective Walsh and he he could give him like a clear story of what's happened so far. But like how he explained to the doctor just moments before. Right. right. Yeah. But instead, all he can say is like, my fiance is in an asylum and I have a strange feeling about it. Like something weird is going on. And the, the detective is like, you know, if I'm going to help you, I need a lot more facts than that. And Chris says, I have a lot more facts. I have this strange feeling. You can feel it when you go there. And he never gets to any of the facts. Yet, for some reason, this detective, who's clearly incredibly busy with paperwork, decides, all right, I will come down to the asylum with you anyway, just to prove you wrong. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I guess he's on the clock. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, first Chris says, and I would think you'd be a little more cordial to a person you're relying on to help you but he's like you know i don't think your time is more valuable than coming out there with me and uh the cop is like all right i'll come but when they get out there the the gates to the asylum are closed and all overgrown there's cobwebs everywhere the whole place looks like decrepit and overgrown and boarded up um so the cop is like thinks he's just bullshitting him. What did you think about this part? You know, the best way to make a a property look derelict in the 70s, according to all these movies, is to just put a bunch of boards over all the entryways and windows and then take all the twigs and fallen branches from the surrounding garden and throw them on the patio. <laughs> And there you go. You got an abandoned property. But there are scenes, there are scenes later in the movie where we see the so-called or the assumedly uh, abandoned inside. And it looks pretty cool. Yeah. So there's parts of this film where, especially from uh, Lucine's, Lucina's uh, viewpoint, where she like phases into like another like world or dimension or something where everything is kind of rusted out and darkened and, and like we're saying derelict, but it doesn't go anywhere. It like, it happens a couple times in the asylum. It happens once at the, at this entrance that we're talking about now. And then I don't think it happens ever again. It's never mentioned. It happens once at the end when they go in, when Chris goes in to rescue Lucinia and she's alone in the house and it's just surrounded by like old furniture and stuff. Uh. And then, and then he carries her outside. But when he turns around and looks, he can see inside of the building is the staff and all of the clean, brightly lit space of the asylum. So it's like I interpret it as, you know, people like uh, Dr. Spector are seemingly immortal, 
but they don't exist in like the real world. They exist in this alternative world that you just sort of phase in and out of. And that that's where, that's like why Lucinio was able to go in and interact with all these people. But when the cops show up, there's nothing there. Yeah, I, th- I think the easiest explanation is that um, the, the the asylum is supposed to be derelict in the real world, but there's probably some sort of satanic illusion being cast over the facility to make everything look um, prim and proper for the victims. But I really like that explanation more, that it's more of a like a weird, timeless, like, gap between existences where uh, people just happen to fade in and out. Unfortunately, I think that's a little too complicated for this film, but I, I, I like mean, that idea. That's, more. that's what, if people have seen the second um, haunting season on Netflix, the haunting of Bly Manor, that that's what's going on in that show. And um, I think it's really well done. Like I've seen, I've seen that idea done before and I've always found it really intriguing because I think it explains like, the, the the experiences people say they have with ghosts. Um, but I think I'm reading a lot of it into this movie. I don't know that it was necessarily thought out by the artists. This does seem like a film where they just uh, kind of recorded a bunch of shit and then tossed it together to make a plot. <laughs> the, there is the, the detective gets all kinds of really strange one-liners um, during this scene, he's becoming increasingly irritated with Chris, who he thinks is just bullshitting him. And he says, when I write my book, you'll be chapter one. I'm like, what does that mean? I, I know there's a lot of um, retired detectives that usually release like a tell-all book of like collective stories featuring uh, bizarre cases they've covered. Maybe this was a throwback to that. Uh, that makes some sense, but on its own in the movie without context, I was just like, this is a wacky one-liner. There's several times where he says things that I thought were wacky. So around this time is when a, a groundskeeper that is clearly Dr. Spectre stumbles out <laughs> from the side of the building. <laughs> and uh, Chris is absolutely furious. And uh, after being... <laughs> turned down and called crazy by the specter groundskeeper he just chris just goes off on this man just fucking slugs him in the face right in front of a detective yep and i do you think do you think this guy who played specter uh charles kissinger do you think he So I said earlier, he was like a local celebrity. Um, I think he introduced movies, but he became famous for used car commercials. Do you think he just liked the idea of playing in different disguises? Maybe, but I imagine this is just what the script called for because this guy has just been, you know, assuming multiple identities to, to keep this ruse on. Really, this seems like way too much effort for just like a couple sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it's very elaborate. Unless this is like an alternative universe where these people have these roles all the time. I don't really know. But anyway, so there's a bunch of eerie things that happen in the middle of the night. Like 
I guess Lucinia is having a nightmare, but she's wandering around and she sees like a rocking chair that's moving by itself and lots of cobwebs. There's a cool looking guy with like half his face missing and white dusty hair. I thought he looked pretty cool. Never explained what he was supposed to be, but whatever. No, we don't know anything about about him, but he does chase Lucinia for a bit. Um, and no one will answer the call. Like when she picks up the phone, no, no operator will answer. And then there's a, at least this was lost on me. She looks at the wall and we get one of those camera zoom ins with the suspicious, you know, clue music playing. And there's a, a print on the wall that says 1803. It's Dr. Spector's medical degree. Oh, okay. All right, so yeah, so we know he's really old, but we already knew yep. that. Um, and finally, Spectre confronts her and raises his arms up really high and just walks towards her, uh, wearing a pentagram around his neck. And he bites her neck like a vampire, which we never see again. But I think this is just a dream. I think that's all. You think so? Yeah, hmm. because we don't see any evidence of him biting her later on yeah i guess so okay so it seems odd and we never see that the guy with his face missing again so i just assumed he was a figment of her imagination as well at first i thought the guy with his face missing was uh, supposed to be one of the regular patients from earlier but then we're later introduced to a scene where the mute guy is uh torched in a dark room by like a bunch of the cultists yeah, they they're I think they're actually outside and these people with white robes surround him with torches uh, and they just light him on fire and he burns extremely well. <laughs> he, he like ignites in a ball of fire immediately. It's that 70s polyester clothing, right? Ah, that makes so much sense. But the next morning, she tells the nurse like what's upstairs i went up there night last night and the nurse says that's impossible that she checked on her several times and she was in her room so it either was a a dream or the nurse is lying to her we don't know (laughs) oh there was a so chris chris was being held by the police all this time for for apparently misleading them uh but they don't have any evidence so they can't do anything they're just going to release him Uh, i think they're primarily I think they're primarily holding him because he battered the groundskeeper. And so they right. were keeping him at the station until the groundskeeper could come in and make a report for the charges. But, but he, he never, he never showed up because, yeah. you know, he doesn't give a shit. Right. But this is where the cop has another one-liner. He says, he tells Chris, go get Aladdin's lamp, and then we can talk. Yeah, that that uh, arabian nights dig (laughs) yeah i just i don't know what's up with these these lines he gets um but even though he dismisses uh chris he makes a phone call and says like check into this doctor because this guy's sincerity really gets to me sure that's exactly what would happen (laughs) yeah um but Chris is not satisfied with this. He goes back to the asylum and sneaks around and he finds uh, a head in the bushes. Yep. Severed head in an abandoned greenhouse. 
and he he wraps it up in his jacket and he takes it to the detective and he drops it on his desk and he says, "Is that enough evidence?" And then yeah. They, <laughs> You know what happens when you walk into a police station with a severed head? <laughs> so are you saying that they got something wrong in this scene? Yeah, I, I think this is kind of a stretch. <laughs> well, it's no less ridiculous than when he tells the detective, like, we've got to go out there and search that place. And the detective says, yeah, we can go tomorrow. Like, I've got to go to, to court and get a warrant approved by a judge. And Chris is like, no, you're going to call the judge right now. And we're going to go out there now because Lucinia might die tonight. And the detective goes. Yeah, you know, fuck protocol and the Constitution. <laughs> let's just let's just go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with... It definitely wasn't like this in the 70s, but like nowadays, there's like so many different aspects of like uh, cases. You can just be like, we're, we're needing a search warrant was thrown out for this reason or another. But back then, you didn't really have that. I don't know. Maybe you could just disregard it. It was like kind of like the Wild West of like modern law enforcement. Well, during this... Um enlistment of the law enforcement uh lucinia is being tied down by these white robed figures and uh i guess she's going to be sacrificed because dr specter starts making a sort of speech to to satan Murdius, 
Helio and Leviathan. Arise, move, appear, leave thy burned and darkened castle beyond the stars. And behold, the goat without horns, untouched, unblemished according to thy desire, and by thy covenant cleansed in the black fire. Show the mystery of thy creation. What do you think of this scene in Dr. Spector's speech to Satan? I don't know if it's just the YouTube version of this film, but the audio balancing throughout this entire film was really off. I watched it on the VHS and I didn't really notice, but it wasn't like good. I mean, He's difficult to understand. And then in like a couple minutes when Satan pops out, I have no clue what he's saying. Yeah, Satan... I'm not sure if he's supposed to be speaking in a foreign language or if he's just supposed to have an altered, mysterious voice. But whatever it is, I have no idea what he says. Okay, actually, there was one sentence where I could tell what he said. So it's mostly English. You just can't tell what's going on. It's kind of like the demon lover. When the demon comes out and starts talking, you're like, oh, what the hell is oh, the yeah. saying? It's yeah, that's a good thing. call. This is also the scene where uh, Martine pulls off her mask and it's Dr. Spectre underneath, which I'm not sure why it has to be a mask when they're the same person. So they look the same. But oh yeah, it is supposed to be a mask. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the glue, the glued mustache hair theory doesn't hold water. Well, it's confusing. Yeah, kind of it like, shouldn't be a mask. It's kind of like never like Mission Impossible Two, where every other scene, <laughs> like a character's ripping their face off to reveal they're somebody else. I like I that. Like that. I think it's campy in that movie. I think it's funny. Oh, God, that movie sucks. No, I like that one. I like that one because you get really goofy melodrama shit like that, and then you also get the the dreamy John Woo action scenes and. uh it doesn't feel like any of the other Mission Possibles, but I do like it. It's like its own thing. Anyway, so what's this? What what's this person saying about trapezoids? <laughs> I have no idea what any of that means. Uh, it kind of feels like they played um, like Mad Libs Satan Edition, <laughs> you know, and they just wrote in random words into this uh, oh. this prayer. It does, sound, it does sound pretty official. It like, does. It sounds pretty esoteric. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't know what's up with the trapezoid. The ambiance um, of the scene is is spot on. And until Satan shows up, then he kind of puts a drag on everything. Yeah, so like I'm partial to this kind of scene and tone, like weird chanting, the sort of hollow echoey sound because it's in a cave or an empty room and the the darkness and the robes and the smoke like all that creates a a satanic ambiance that's really effective to me like it's it's creeped me out since i was a little kid and maybe this because i was raised religious so as a kid anything involving satan was like 
the epitome of evil and scariness. But even now, I find these Satanism scenes really effective. But two things, I think, undo this scene. One is that it keeps alternating with scenes of Chris and the cops driving out there with their (laughs) funky music soundtrack. And then Satan shows up. And so, I don't know, how would you describe Satan's appearance? This is worse than, like, rubber alien costumes from, like, the original Star Trek. Yeah. This costume feels like it was made 10 years before this movie was filmed. Yeah. That's watching fair. this makes you appreciate the demon and the demon lover a thousand percent more. That is a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. It it does look really silly, but I mean it's impossible to take seriously. Like imagine if you went to Disney and they had like a Satan ride. This is this would be Satan. Like it looks like a mascot. A mascot I- for a Satan theme park. I I still like it. Even though it's bad, I like it. How are you going to have like static rubber eyes, man? I don't know, but it, like I said earlier, like if my if it was Halloween and my neighbors were putting on a haunted house in their garage and they had this costume, I think it was really cool. Like yeah, that's that they should probably be held to an entirely different standard than this movie, but when productions feel really amateurish like this and low budget, stuff like this doesn't bother me. I can't be scared of it, but I don't necessarily dislike it either. I just feel like there was probably a more tasteful way to pull this off. Like maybe just have Satan be like a really robed, creepy person or something. There, there was another answer here. Well, because Satan lacks any and all ability to express or emote, I'm not really sure what he's thinking when he's walking around Lucinia, but apparently he is not pleased because she is not a virgin, which, again, I don't know why they thought she was a virgin. And why does Satan need a virgin sacrifice anyway? Like, what is he, a, like a Hawaiian volcano? He delights in stealing someone's innocence and purity i don't know it just seems like something satan would do is is this a have we ever experienced this in another piece of like satanic like portrayal like revolving sacrifice i don't think so i don't think there's ever been any sort of like demand for like purity except for um I guess uh, Hack O'Lantern, where <laughs> the, the the grandson needed to be pure for Satan, but that wasn't a sacrifice. No, I know I've seen this in other things, but nothing is coming to mind immediately. Mm. But I feel like the 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 sacrifice being virgin or the offering being virgin, like I feel like that's a trope. Like that's something that you see all the time. All right, I guess. You know, I think Satan set this guy on fire because he tried to gaslight Satan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the entire time he's like, no, master, there's nothing wrong with the sacrifice. I examined her myself throughout this entire film. She's definitely the pure virginal innocence that you want. And Satan's just like, bitch, I 
literally came up from hell to, to for, for this woman i'm telling you man i smell the vintage it ain't right <laughs> yeah so then, you know he had a set he had a set specter on fire you know we can't let that sort of thing go go unpunished no and i'm i'm glad he did the specter slash martine slash groundskeeper was an asshole <laughs> But while Satan is shaking its head, this one man gets like metal tongs, but I'm not sure what he's doing with them. Like, are they going to pull her teeth out? What? So I think he was getting ready to sacrifice her, but instead of doing it in like the old style of, say, a cartoonishly large, like ritualistic dagger or something, they were about to just open her up with medical equipment. It's a tray of surgical tools. Oh, uh, the only one I saw was the tong things that he picked up. Yeah, I'm not sure why they started with the tongs, but I mean, it's not a real hospital, so. Well, once Satan realizes that his bride or his sacrifice is not a virgin, he just stares at Spectre and Spectre bursts into flames and burns (laughs) remarkably fast. It's the polyester robes. In like 10 (laughs) seconds, he's just a pile of ash around a a skeleton. Again, this this effect does not look good, but I find it charming. It's ineptitude charms. (laughs) But by the time Chris and the cops get there, um, everything's gone. The only thing inside is Lucinia passed out on the floor. And everything is like cobwebbed and decrepit. Um, so this was the origin of my theory earlier that they were like passing in and out of an alternative timeless dimension. But Chris turns around as they're all leaving and looks inside. And there's a really like dramatic scream into the camera as something like approaches his face and then when he goes outside i think he's supposed to be possessed is that what you got yeah actually i think you i think you're spot on there anyway one thing i noticed at the very end when the credits start is that william girdler the director writer also did the music Hmm. i'm always impressed when someone can does all three let's go ahead and give reviews and uh ratings out of four all right so uh when i was first watching this film i thought it was going to be uh, way more cerebral than it turned out to be um i was actually starting to consider and maybe this is just because i you know luke and i have seen a lot of um off the wall psychological satanic films and i was beginning to think like this asylum was actually hell that she maybe died in the hospital and this was she there was going to be a big reveal where this was like actually her her bad place her punishment and then when the fiance was joining her, I was like, okay, maybe he died as well. And it turns out the what's actually going on is a hundred percent simpler than what I was trying than what I was looking for. But you know, normally when you have hell and asylums together, it's in films that are um a little more obtuse than this, like say Jacob's Ladder, where I think it has the most iconic uh asylum in hell setup um the the burning moon also has that asylum in hell where it's it's almost like uh uh, it's like a a mass 
shooting in hell for like 15 minutes of the film um anyway so a lot of these movies that actually feature hell and hospitals together tend to be like a little again more out there less tangible and this film does have again this weird um reality skipping mechanic going on where is it an illusion is there actually like an alternate dimension that they are hopping into and that's what dr specter actually lived in um, that, that's how he was able to preserve himself whatever the reason i'm not going to necessarily hold that against the film but i was a little surprised that it was it was a little simpler than what i was expecting going into it uh, so let's talk about what this film does well um as far as the treatment of the main character you know the real horror here is not what's described on the back of the box these like uh potential sacrifices and the demons running around and rituals it's this it's just being not taking seriously <laughs> and being misled into thinking something's wrong when clearly um you know you're all right you shouldn't be here for any reason everyone talks down to this woman so the the real terror here isn't what was described on the back of the box with ritual sacrifices and like demons running around and like horrific uh like acts of torture it's it's all about uh condescension and mansplaining and just a general sense of downplaying and gaslighting of everything this main character has been trying to do that that is like that is the real horror here that's actually played out extremely well um i think that is that is the film's strong point um, the strongest point the second being that there is this really cool atmosphere that is perfectly well maybe perfectly is a strong word but it's like succinctly hit um with bizarre scenes like again the one of the opening scenes of the movie where we are introduced to the white robe cultists and they're just like all in the dining room staring at their eggs or <laughs> you have the uh ritual room at the end of the film which i kind of didn't appreciate at the time but re-watching these clips i think um have really given me a new a new insight into it i i in retrospect the um as well the dimension hopping was more prevalent than i remember i think partly because this movie does drag in a lot of parts and those can really take a lot out of you to to really make it harder to appreciate some of the better things of this film uh Getting into the bad, the pacing is really off. I think they probably could have cut about 15 minutes out of like excess scenes and everything would have been fine. Even uh, with the, the weird screenplay problems, like the, nothing with the detective ever would have happened in real life. But I realized that you can't really write a screenplay and have it be like, you know, one for one with what would actually happen in reality. But it's still like such a large jump in logic of what law enforcement would actually do in this situation. I would like to rate this higher, but because of the general length and downtime between things actually happening, I, I got to go with like one and a half stars. And it kind of hurts because I do think there's a lot of cool things about this film. But the good news is this director goes on to do other things and does like, I mean, I've only seen the Manitou, but likely um, a lot of these um themes these things that you find in this film that you would like would probably show up in his later work 
just a different form. Yeah, I like this movie more than Leland. I think it is part of a genre from the time period that, as I said earlier, is usually, I usually associate it with England and with Hammer films in particular, but where you've got a female protagonist who is, nobody believes her, everybody is acting as if she's going insane, and it's about the frustration of being in that position and the fear of being isolated and i actually find that a really captivating and like horrific idea and i also find the idea of being confined to an insane asylum against my will to be a really scary idea and then as i said earlier i have a penchant for all things 70s and satanic and so all of that I guess I'm kind of biased in favor of this movie. Plus, it just has kind of a grindhouse atmosphere, and I enjoy that low-budget look and feel um, from this era. I love the fashion. I even like the acting styles. Um, Some of what Leland sees as unrealistic, like the behavior of the police, I just see that as like, eh, that's a simpler time and place in the 70s where like people didn't know they didn't have of 30 episodes of law and order on every day to watch. Right. That's like saying law and order is an actual representation of law enforcement too. And that is, that's wrong. The the detective stuff is probably better, more, more realistic than that. Yeah. I'm not getting, I'm not getting at it being realistic. What I'm saying is that those cop shows give viewers a certain expectation of what's supposed to happen. And if this movie were to come out now, it would be more like that, like a Law and Order episode, right? And I- I'm glad it's not like that. Um, I-, I it elevates this movie for me. Um, but anyway, with all that being said, it's impossible to take seriously because so many things look goofy. Uh, not not least of which is Satan himself. Um, but like the weird facial hair, the man playing a woman, these aspects are eventually explained, but they're odd enough to keep me really engaged. Um, I think this movie's the perfect length, and I don't think that it's slow at any parts, really. I do think there's some some weird pacing decisions, but they don't bother me. Uh, my wife and I watched it together. It was her first time, and like we riffed on it and had fun the whole time. So I think that this is like a really fun movie to watch. I think last week I said on a rainy Saturday afternoon and here yesterday, it was a snowy Saturday afternoon and we were stuck inside and that was the perfect time to watch it. Um, I'm maybe I'd be more bored if I watched this movie by myself. I'm not sure, but anyway, um, I'm going to give it two and a half stars. And I think my enjoyment of that is, is actually it's, I actually enjoy it more than that suggests, but it's so silly and ineptly done in some ways that I don't think I can go higher. You know, I I would say if the execution of Satan's appearance had been pulled off with a little bit more grace, maybe that would have made the difference. Yeah. And you can't even like, if this movie had come out in the fifties, I would say, well, that's just like the best they could do with movie monsters. But this was the seventies there were definitely some better effects out there and better movie monsters. But all right, so um, that's it for Asylum of Satan. I definitely recommend you watch it, especially if you like satanic stuff or you like insane asylum stuff. It's 
I think it's fun. Just don't take it seriously. Okay, so that is it for Asylum of Satan. Next week, we are going back to our roots with the film that really defined John Waters' career, Pink Flamingos. This was one of the first midnight movies, the most controversial films of all time. And uh, while it's not my favorite John Waters movie, it's probably the most iconic. Leland, have you ever watched this one? I don't think I've seen this entire film, just clips here and there. I feel like we watched it together once, but maybe I'm wrong. This is the movie where someone sits on a chicken and it dies, right? Uh, More like they have sex on top of it. Okay. Yeah, that's the kind of film you're getting if you haven't seen Pink Flamingos. But I highly recommend that you check it out if you have not seen it before. Or hell, if you have seen it before, give it a watch. And then join us next week to talk about more John Waters, which I'm always happy to talk about. All right, Leland, any last words this week? Thank you for your continued support. Beautiful. We will catch you next week to talk about Pink Flamingos.